HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Dyed Green on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. Longtime listeners of the show might know that Kate and I also founded Bog and Thunder, which is an Irish food and travel company. One of the things that we do is we take people around on guided group tours of different parts of the country, focusing on food, but not just about food. And we are really fortunate enough to be able to you know, take advantage of the incredible food culture that there really is in Ireland. There's incredible restaurants. There are amazing producers. There's farms that you can visit. Obviously, we've interviewed a lot of people on this show, and this show, Dyed Green, was kind of a way for us to spend more time talking to a lot of these incredible people whose whose work actually makes it possible for us to go around and run these food tours. There are small producers, there are small restaurants, and a lot of the people that founded these projects are still really, really involved. And it kind of creates a more intimate experience when you go there and you see someone who started the project and is still a part of it many, many years later. Another thing that we found that's really exciting about the food scene in Ireland right now is the number of chefs who are immigrants from other parts of the world that come to Ireland and use Irish food to interpret their home cuisines. You know, it's something that, you know, perhaps we take for granted because it's been happening in a while for Ireland right now. While we've been traveling around for many years, you know, we definitely didn't start getting involved in doing our research until after the Celtic Tiger, which happened in the mid to late 90s and was the economic boom in Ireland that kept a lot of people in Ireland instead of leaving to go to other places and also resulted in a lot of immigration from other parts of Europe in particular, bringing people into Ireland to, you know, make an impact there. So I'm really excited to talk to our guests on today's show because they started their food journalism and their culinary journey around Ireland in the very early 90s, so before the Celtic Tiger. And I'm really interested to hear what the food landscape was 
uh, when they began. It's my understanding that there were actually not very many restaurants in the country at that time. Lots of pubs, not a lot of restaurants. So yeah, so we're really excited to have our guests on today and to ask them a little bit about what things were like when they got started and find out maybe a little bit of what we're taking for granted. And we are really fortunate to have John and Sally McKenna on the show today. They are award-winning food journalists. Um, They've been writing in the field for 30 years at this point. They're most well-known for the McKenna Guides. We consider them to be the go-to guides for food and hospitality in Ireland. And uh, they're still being published on paper, which is really cool in the day and age of everything moving to digital. And we'll definitely be asking them about that too. They've published many books as well. And Sally's book, Extreme Greens, covers all things seaweed and was published in 2013 uh and now seaweed is uh it's all over yeah it's popular it's on all the menus all the rage um couldn't think of a better pair to talk about the evolution of the food scene in ireland how things have changed and where things are headed so we're really excited to welcome them onto the show john and sally thank you so much for being on dyed green thank you for asking us thank you it's great to be able to talk to you. Likewise. <laughs> so. so just to jump right in, the two of you have been champions of Irish food for at least 30 years or more. You're two of Ireland's most highly regarded food journalists, authors of what we think are the best Irish travel guides, and you've also published some books on top of that. I understand, John, that you were once a barrister, and so I was wondering if you could talk about when your love of food began and what your motivation was to get involved in this sort of work? Yes, I was, um, whether you call them a briefless barrister or a starving barrister. Um, So I had a horsehair wig and and no work to do um, back in Dublin in the 1980s. And the upside of that was I could take lengthy holidays during the summer because I didn't have any work to do. So we used to backpack around Europe, uh, around India, Pakistan. And I really wish I could, at this point, identify the Eureka moment. It was probably at the fourth or fifth museum I had dragged Sally to in one day in Paris or Rome or somewhere. And then we went out and had lunch. And at some point I realized that the art in Italy or in Paris Uh, The culture wasn't in the museum hanging on a wall or on a plinth. It was actually on the plate in front of me at a table. And that really was the, the moment when the light really shone. And I realized that to see culture as something that's kind of ancient and atrophied, as opposed to something that is spontaneous and improvised and of the moment was a, was a fundamental mistake that I was making in my understanding of culture. Um, and, and I just began to get more interested in food. I had worked in food as a dishwasher, which is really my major qualification to be a food writer. I am a world-class dishwasher. Um, if you're it's the a dishwasher, very important role. Yeah. Not to yes, be understated. You, you're, you're the, you're the engine room of the kitchen. And the kitchen can't do without you. And you also, by proxy, learn how the kitchen works. And you learn that now means now. Everything is in the moment. Um, And I had done some 
some terrible and some acceptable kind of dishwashing jobs when I was a student. I also made hamburgers for a year, which was when I crossed over to the dark side, which is actually very valuable education because you see food being commodified rather than cooked. And it, it was a terrible experience, but it was a valuable experience. And so I got more and more into it. And the upshot was finally, uh, at the end of the 1980s, we had done some traveling in France with Patricia Wells' books. And we said to somebody, literally at a party, it's like a joke. We said, you know, we'd love to write a book about Irish food. And they said, well, you know what? If you do that, we'll publish it. The only problem was at that time, we didn't really know anything about Irish food. But it didn't deter us. There wasn't even a, such a thing as Irish food. <laughs> right. Well, that's actually the question, right? Like what was when you were asked to write a book about Irish food, you know, the Irish food world was really different from what it's like now uh, oh, in terms of imagine. restaurants and, and restaurants, chefs, media, everything. So what can you paint the picture for us of what My it was like me, at it, that time? It, it was just so different at that time. I mean, there was no Internet. There was no the, the Papers weren't that interested. Um, there was very little writing about it. And we we literally, I think I saw something on television. I think it was Keith Floyd at the time. And he was looking at cheese, uh, somebody's cheese room. And we just thought, oh, I wonder if anybody's making cheese in Ireland. And what? so we, we sort of got this car and we just went, drove over the hill. And we saw a restaurant that said, classic Irish food or traditional traditional Irish food. traditional Irish food and I mean it was a traditional Irish burger with traditional Irish ketchup uh, so we thought no that's not that's not what we're looking for <laughs> and so we we just there was we literally we took the time off and we went down the roads the country roads we called into whole food shops um, because you'd find the organic growers and you'd find the cheesemakers in the Whole Food shops. Um, the the restaurant scene was very different. It was a mixture of very high-end res restaurants and sort of cafes. There wasn't any sort of middle market um, food or very little ethnic food. So we just, we put our first book together, but we discovered some incredible things. I mean, the, the cheesemakers were major part of it and the whole dairy industry which obviously is so important to Ireland um was really flourishing then in fact we're just researching about the female pioneers who started the whole cheese industry in Ireland and people like Veronica Steele and you know we we went into these cheese rooms and we met them and then we met the fish smokers people like Sally Barnes I think you know Sally and we said, well, this is what Irish food is. So it's organic, it's veg, it's growing, it's vegetables. And then we watched Ireland change over 30, 40 years and people really understanding that we're a product producer led food culture. It's, it's all about the quality of ingredients. That's what sets Ireland apart. And it's just been very exciting. We've followed it since and it's thrived and it's just got better and better. When you first started off and you were doing research into Irish food, I think a lot of people who would be doing a food guide would focus on restaurants, but obviously you found a lot happening on the producer level. So how did you balance the what was happening on the ground versus sort of the expectations of what one might find expect to find in a food guide? You know, was it were there not a lot of restaurants? Was it mainly focused on producers at that time? What was that like? 
There were very few restaurants. There, there, there weren't a lot of restaurants. The restaurants were in Dublin. Uh, Dublin as the capital was where the money was. Um, it's very difficult to have a restaurant culture without a uh, without money, to be blunt. And Ireland in the 1980s was extremely poor. We we have seen two parallel trends in the last 35 years. One is literally, almost literally from the day we started writing about food, Irish food has gotten better. The second thing is, apart from one momentous collapse in 2008, the Irish economy has grown steadily and steadily and steadily. Our economy produces a surplus, uh, unlike, for example, our neighbour, the United Kingdom, which has a major black hole uh, in its finances, which is causing them all sorts of problems. That's not to say we're a wealthy country. Relatively speaking, we're not. But we used to belong at the very bottom of the European Union uh, pile with, say, Greece, say, Portugal. Those countries have come a long way, particularly Portugal. But nobody has actually come as far economically as Ireland. And that ability of people to have jobs, to have well-paid jobs, to have spending power, has also coincided with the fact of people nowadays choosing to go to restaurants rather than going to pubs. Irish people used to be famous for drinking and have famous pubs. We still have great pubs. But we have lost thousands of pubs over the last 15 to 20 years. The rural population, you know, you, it's, you, you can't just get in your car and go and have drinks in the bar. It's just not possible to do that. It's illegal. So people have shifted from... Um, drinking to eating and they have the money to spend on eating and that economic factor has been as important as the creative factor because what we've also seen is whilst there was initially <clears throat> a cohort of talented artisans we now have wonderful chefs wonderful bakers wonderful fish smokers bacon curers right across the culinary board we have people who are we would say world-class at what they do. So in the same way that Ireland 35 years ago was a completely different country socially and economically to what it is today, Ireland in a culinary sense is also a, it's, it's a, a different world entirely. And I, I think in a way it was interesting because our, our books, because we've done so many of them, they have reflected what's happening in Ireland over it's very interesting to look back you know the first books there were you know you'd go into Sligo and there'd be one restaurant that you'd recommend in the whole of the county or um you know in Cork there was Myrtle Allen and so there was good stuff there but it was just it was all producer-led so as as time goes on now our books are really not the the Ireland the best book that we produce that we're just writing at the moment um restaurants restaurants I mean we've wonderful wonderful restaurants throughout the country not just in Dublin but really in every city um, and and changing dynamic great great industry fabulous food you know as good as anywhere in the world or better I think that you can't really talk about what is Irish food culture without talking about the history of Ireland and the impact of say colonization the famine and then the long periods of emigration and poverty that Ireland has experienced. And, you know, one thing that we have been remarking on or noticing more recently is that there's been a lot more post-Celtic Tiger immigration to Ireland. And 
Irish chefs returning from having worked abroad that are helping to define Irish food culture in new ways today. You've been around long enough to see this shift happening. How would you describe these changes and how they're impacting the food scene? I, I would say one thing that's interesting, actually, everything used to gravitate to Dublin when we first started. Mm-hmm. And now what's happening is that people are opening, <clears throat> chefs are opening restaurants in their home villages. And that's a very, very positive mm-hmm thing that's happening now all the time we say oh yes he's opened in that you know back end of nowhere because he's from there and that's where his family are from and everything where she's opened here and that's been a very good thing Mm -hmm. as well as returning international chefs and indeed we've seen a flourishing ethnic and um diverse cuisines especially in in dublin opening up all the time and i think there's a real appetite um, for foods from all over the world, all over the globe. Yeah, uh, I think, a real city now for food. But also, I think the biggest change really in terms of emigration is that if you go back to famous remark made by President John F. Kennedy when he visited Wexford in 1961, I think, maybe, I'm probably wrong, probably 62. And he said, Ireland is a curious country because other countries export steel or they export oil and Ireland exports people. And that was what we did. And when those people went, they did not expect to ever come back. They did not expect to come back. They went off on the boat and they never expected to see home again. Um, Maybe down the line for a week or if somebody died, but, but that was it. They were, they were gone. Their, their skills, their personality, their uh, relationship with where they came from was gone. Nowadays, Irish people emigrate as a lifestyle choice. Our children, who are all in their 20s, the two boys are in Berlin, our daughter is in Rome. This is entirely lifestyle choices. Learn languages, do masters, study this, learn this. The same is absolutely true of the chefs. Do your stages in London, do your stages in Amsterdam, do your stages in Copenhagen, then come back home to to where you were born. One of the really most important figures in regard to this. He's also one of the funniest men in in, uh, working in Ireland, Paul Flynn from the Tannery Restaurant in Dublin. Um, Paul did the usual thing, left school at 16, went to London, really became right-hand man to a chef who was very famous then called Nico Ledenis, and came back home, worked for a little while in Dublin, and then went back home to Dungarvan in County Waterford and opened up a restaurant called The Tannery, which is now 25 years old. That was a very radical act 25 years ago in Ireland, to think that you could cook modern, creative, left-field Irish food in a little town like Dungarvan seemed like an act of insanity, but it wasn't. Paul is a very intelligent man. He had great foresight, and he knew he could do it, and he did it through hard work. But he found his audience and he found his West Waterford cuisine. And he is really an archetype of the returning chef who, rather than enriching other uh, food cultures overseas, has actually brought back what he learned and enriched our culture. And that's been happening all the time ever since. I mean, if you think we live in a hill, hill in West Cork and there's very few houses maybe five houses, and our, our wonderful, wonderful elderly neighbours, they were, I think there was 11 children in the family, and 
they were one of those families where people went to London or, or different places and didn't come home. And there's a story of the two brothers in the UK in some shop and they somehow got talking and realized that they were brothers and never met, had never met. And that is our neighbor who we walk with every evening. Whereas our own children traveling the world, we're WhatsApping them, you know, every morning and evening. And so it just in just one generation or yeah. two generations that that can be so different for this part of West Cork. Yeah. That's actually a perfect segue to the next question I had, which was sort of about technology and how, you know, shifts in technology have changed the way that you do your work and that people interact with it. So, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the shift from like print to online, but obviously you're still writing books. And then where do you see the direction headed in the future for you? Well, I mean, the first thing we did when we came to live in West Cork was we 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 sent so John sent something electronically, or did we? We plugged in the fax, and yeah. that was something. I, then, I had to send a story <laughs> yeah. to. I was the food writer for the Irish Times for quite a long time, and um, the first thing we had to do when we rented a house was I, I we had to plug in a fax machine which we had brought down from Dublin, and I typed up the story and faxed it into the newspaper where somebody else would have had to set it for the machines. When I was a journalist for The Independent, it wasn't for food. Well, it was sort of food, but you'd phone it in, you know, you'd you'd actually talk to someone on the telephone yeah. and they'd write, they'd transcribe it and write it down. But then we've done just about, we've tried everything at this stage. We started with books and we're still on books, which we're so proud of because um, it is wonderful to write books and people still yeah. buy books. Every, everybody said 10 years ago, everybody said books are dead. Why are you writing guidebooks? They and now there's there's also an um, article about how um, there are more and more small independent bookstores opening up in small towns, which was something that di people didn't predict happening 10 years ago either. So sorry to interrupt, yeah, but it I seems mean, like books are around to, a, to stay for we now. We were in the Bantry bookshop this morning. This morning, so, yeah, yeah, buying, yeah. buying a, a, a cookery book in aid of Ukraine. We did apps. Um, we we worked with the DCU, Dublin City University, and we created an app for the Wild Atlantic Way. It was, uh, and we did restaurant hundred best restaurant apps. And the thing that struck us was it was actually like top of paid for apps in Apple uh, uh, during the weeks that we produced it. But we just said that's top. And we're only selling like <laughs> such a small amount, <laughs> you know. So the Spotify, could but, yeah, the, yeah. So you just like you just people just didn't pay money for apps, yeah. um, and yeah. they they didn't want to. They just wanted them free. So yeah. uh, I think yeah. there's also though something to be said about the aesthetic of a beautiful book. Um, we we have always tried to make beautiful books. You know, we, we have a simple rule about when it comes back from the printer and you, you hold it in your hands. You say, well, does it feel right? Does it does it have the right vibe, the right feel? Which sounds like a stupid thing to say or even believe. But if you love books, it's a real thing. And you can have a relationship with a book. You can't have a relationship with an app. Um, and a book can mark, you know, particularly with the, so the, the Wild Atlantic Way guys we've written have done rather well, thankfully. And I think people use them as markers of where they've been, where they travel to, what they remember. 
you know, that they swam at that beach and then they ate at that place. So they had a lovely, the best pint of Guinness ever in, in that pub near that beach, near that nice place where they had dinner. So I think there is always something to be gained by trying to write something well. I mean, you know, we're, we're writers and the art of writing often is overlooked. People, people now talk about content, but content is not the same as a skillfully constructed sentence. If we didn't value skillfully constructed sentences, then the New Yorker would collapse tomorrow, but it won't collapse tomorrow because people like me have a subscription, even though I live up a hill in West Cork and I have never been to New York. Doesn't matter. I pay them $200 a year because why? Because the writing and the editing is sensationally good. And I have spent my life trying to catch that sort of ability and skill um, and failing. But, you know, the next book I write will surely be the one. I believe this every time. Every time I'm writing a book, I think, do you know, this is it. This is the one. And then I get it. I get the book and I think, oh, what happened? (laughs) Too self-critical. But actually, one thing we've just started doing, which is quite exciting, is um, we've started a newsletter. Uh, because we were reading other and seeing other newsletters, people were saying to us, "You should do a newsletter." So we literally just a week ago started one um, on Substack, and it's just great fun because it's nice to. The, the thing about a book is it takes so long, and then yeah. there's a long time for between writing it and printing it. But the newsletter, you can actually write about what's going on right now, and um, and in fact, we enjoy social media too as well. We we do enjoy Instagram. Um, because I like taking photos and John likes writing. So we tend to, we try to put as much content into it and. Uh, well, as so, much craft. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, no, so we, we just, we just like writing about Irish food. So we just use whatever medium we can find to do it. I think one of the things, you know, that we have been very fortunate, aside from the fact that Irish food all the time we've written about, it just keeps getting better and better, which makes our life nice. Um, but it's the fact that, the creative people who work in food, generally speaking, with very few exceptions, and I mean very few exceptions, are usually delightful. Um, they're charming. They're creative. They're, they're, they make something from nothing, relatively speaking. And that is the same whether they're farmers or herb growers or basket makers or chefs. Generally speaking, they're extremely nice people. They're driven. They're dynamic. They're creative. And... You know, I used to be a lawyer and I used to hang out with lawyers and they aren't like that. You know, you, you don't want to hang with lawyers, but you do want to hang out with chefs because they're cool. And organic farmers are cool. When, when we made our first ever trip to West Cork in 1989, uh, two, two gentlemen took us under their wing and said, come and see what we were doing. One of them was the famous Edward Toomey, who made black pudding. He made Clonacilty black pudding and he made it world famous. And the other one was a gentleman who, who, with his family, ran a little local hotel in a little town in West Cork, Clonakilty. His name was Tom O'Donovan, O'Donovan's Hotel. It's still there. And we were bowled over by these people because they were so spontaneous. They were so generous. And if you've been hanging with lawyers, you think, where have these lovely people been all the time? I was studying law, you know, and it was, they were just delightful to be with. And 35 years on, when we meet these people, now we meet their children, who we remember as children. And now the children are running the businesses, making the cheese, running the restaurants. 
And it's very, very delightful to be able to communicate what these people are trying to do. That's our job. We're ciphers. This is what they're trying to do. And we're hopefully conveying their creativity, their originality. And it's a lovely job. It's a lovely thing to be able to do that. That sounds great. Going back to the subject of writing books, Sally, I was wondering if you could talk about the inspiration behind Extreme Greens. Where and when did you first encounter seaweed as something to eat? Was it something you were always interested in or did this come out in your travels? Um, It came out, I suppose, as a result of, um, you know, when we write about food, you tend to drive and then you go to a restaurant and then you go to bed and then you and it's not a very healthy lifestyle. So I decided I needed to do something. So I, I joined a local. I went to a sailing and kayaking and windsurfing course which was probably a bit dumb given I was in my 40s and, you know, 40s restaurant writer wasn't. Um, but anyway, I survived it and learned and fell in love with kayaking particularly. And when I was kayaking, I was looking at all the seaweed and I thought, I don't really know anything about this. And so I started to study it. And, you know, with the kayak, you can get right up to it. Irish seaweed is unbelievable, but it's what it loves is rough water and cold water and, you know, oxygenated freezing water. So you can, the way to get to the sea, a lot of the seaweed is actually um, from the sea rather than from the rocks. So I just got fascinated and slightly obsessed and decided to write a book about it because I felt that there was a need because um, it was such a resource that we didn't really understand. So I wrote a book that was partly a, a guide to seaweed um, and partly and then recipes on how to use it. And I still I, I think it was a useful thing to do because it is this fantastic resource. And it's such an unusual thing, seaweed, because it's really the whole umami concept behind it, where if you put seaweed, you can put seaweed, anything from chocolate to um, roast chicken to pasta, whatever, to soup. And what it does, whatever you put it with, it brings on the flavor. That umami thing is like a background flavor. It brings down the fl- the flavor of what you put it with. So it's it's you. It's not something like you know a lettuce that you just you know there it is. It's just got all these different layers of taste and flavor and how it re- reacts with other food. And so there's an awful lot of learning to know how to use it. And in Ireland seaweed had been associated with poverty for a long time. There's lots of really sad stories about people, seaweed, who who they, they pick the seaweed, they take the seaweed on the donkey for 30, 50 kilometers to market. And then everybody would be there in the market. And then the day would go on and none of the seaweed would sell. And then eventually somebody would drop the price because they knew they couldn't, the donkey couldn't carry the seaweed home. So it had to be sold. And then, of course, everybody would pile in and get it at this lower price. The the phrase to rack and ruin was about people searching for seaweed, you know, when they're actually in in desperate straits, because rack is a a type of seaweed. Um, And the famine as well. And people, in fact, people who understood seaweed and understood fishing survived the famine. The Aran Islands were fine during the famine, but people didn't have the boats. And I mean, every bit of seaweed was picked during the famine, but there wasn't enough, you know, there wasn't enough to renew itself. So Ireland has this very complex relationship with seaweed. 
doesn't a lot of people don't really understand how to use it and um so a book needed to be written and i very much enjoyed writing it do you still like to cook with seaweed do you do you use it in your oh, regular yeah, we do it's very healthy it's so good for you you know it's got so good for you it's like 97 bioavailable uh, good things vitamins and and it's it's good at different times of year sometimes it's high in vitamin a and other times vitamin c vitamin d so and it's got minerals to beat the band um so it, it's we would you know we would sprinkle it in into anything literally and then we would take a slice of you know sometimes what in march just where we live we would go you can get the atlantic wakami and it's old enough that you can pick it because if you pick it too young you're picking the the creative sp- the spores really so we we know that we can get it in march and we would try and pick it and then dry it and then you have it for the rest of the year um and you just put a, a frond into any sort of casserole or any, and and it's, it's fantastic um so yeah we do we do try to use it yes but mind you some um i mean some people were onto it a long long time ago we we, we often say that um, when Myrtle Allen opened Ballymaloo House in Shanagarry in East Cork in 1964, um, that's really the big bang for Irish food. Everything that happens after that happened because of what Myrtle did in, in opening Ballymaloo. And on the dessert trolley on Ballymaloo at, at the very beginning was carrageen moss, uh, carrageen pudding. If we were all having dinner there, dinner there tonight, carrageen moss will be on that dessert trolley prepared by their amazing dessert chef. It's a young man called J.R. Ryle. He's just written the most beautiful book called Ballymaloo Desserts, which pays tribute to Mrs. Allen, uh, who everybody always calls Mrs. Allen, by the way. You never called Myrtle Allen Myrtle. She was always Mrs. Allen. And she was really an extraordinary woman. But she, back in 64, she knew that carrageen and seaweeds were valuable, valuable uh, assets in the larder. And um, just a little tip, by the way, for anybody who ever has a sore throat, if you do have a sore throat, get some carrageen, soak it in boiling water, strain off the slightly mucoid liquid, mix it with a little bit more boiling water and some lemon. You can also add a little drop of whiskey or brandy now if you like. It's not compulsory, which means it is compulsory. And if you drink that, your sore throat will be gone in 24 hours. Works every single time because the, the seaweeds, like carrageen, have these extraordinary properties. They are the original superfoods. They're actually antiviral and, and, and antibiotic. You know, they they do. Um, they're now it's now scientifically understood. They have all these good things to offer. Yeah, you know, you just reminded me. We were on a seaweed walk in Kerry last month, and we learned about. I don't remember what kind of seaweed. It was, but there's a certain type of seaweed that actually is really good at removing plaque from your teeth. I think it was discovered because there was a dog who had a plaque <laughs> problem who was eating a lot of it, and then his plaque went away. I guess people take supplements for that too, but it, it seems like really like the health benefits are, are endless. Yeah, I can yeah, find out. We can find out. And I'd let love you know. to know. Yeah, we have yeah. to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And also, I think nowadays, because chefs have got very interested now, we're, just, we're trying new different types of seaweed. There's a seaweed sort of sea noodle, we would call it, which, which um, you know, it's just very, it's really adaptable to Asian food. And that wasn't that wasn't actually ever really eaten. People only ate, they ate the carrageen and the dillus, um, and they would perhaps a bit of kelp. But the nowadays, people are trying the pepperdals and... Um, 
the the, the little pom-pom seaweed um which they're very very strong that um they're called the truffle of the sea but they're they're it's only really in the last decade that people have started using those in a culinary um sense yeah it seems like it's one of the sort of quintessential ingredients maybe maybe not of irish food like forever but it's at least in the in the last like you said 10 years in terms of how people are using it in new ways but it is one of those things that's always been there and there's so much history contained in telling the story of it and then seeing how its use has exploded and um expanded in like all these different sort of creative and innovative ways is i think kind of telling about like what's happening right now with irish food in general I think actually that goes back a little bit to what you were saying about the development of telecommunications and media. Um, you know, it used to be if chefs wanted to learn, if you wanted to learn about Japanese food, then you got on a plane and you went to Tokyo. Now, of course, you don't have to do that. You can just turn on Netflix and there are hours upon hours upon hours and you can learn basically baby steps for for so many cuisines just by sitting in your sitting in your sitting room. So I think you know, this is one of the, the the interesting things now with chefs is, in a sense, they have a, a larder of global influences at their fingertips. Now, obviously, they still want the good guys still want to go and do the stages here, there and everywhere. And the bakers is, is exactly the same thing. You know, we've had a wonderful explosion. Um, people associate Ireland with soda bread. We, we make very, very good soda bread. Soda bread's not necessarily very healthy for you if you eat it every day of the year. So... What is a healthy bread to eat? Sourdough, because it, it works for our microbiome. <clears throat> it's much, much better in that regard for the microbiome than, than soda bread. But we didn't used to have um, sourdough. We didn't have any sort of specialty bread like that. We didn't have any specialty patisserie. Now we do. We have wonderful, wonderful bakers. A lot of them self-taught. A lot of them like small little units. You know, Sally and I, in a sense, our work echoes a lot of these people because we are two people who work in a little office up a hill in West Cork. A lot of these other people work in a, two people in a little bakery up a hill in West Waterford or wherever it may be. So, you know, and for us as well, there was a realization many, many years ago that small is beautiful, that, you know, if you wanted to grow your industry, you could, but it involved maybe too many compromises that you wouldn't be necessarily be, be very happy with. So, we have learned from these artisan industries and sort of said, well, what is it we do? What do we want to do? What should we keep on doing? And, and we have been fortunate to be able to keep on doing that now, you know, for, for 35 years. And then to see these new bursts of creativity, whether it's with sourdough, whether it's for people using seaweeds, whether it's with people foraging, um, and to see then the communication between people happening very rapidly. Communication used to happen very slowly. Now it's instantaneous. If somebody puts up, uh, you know, uh, wow, look at that loaf, then somebody else is saying, you know what, I'm going to bake that now. And on and on it goes. It's fantastic. It's very exciting. As a really quick, as a baker myself, I I totally get that whole feeling where you see the loaf of bread and you're like, I want to do that. I want to try that. And it's been like pretty incredible to see the rise of artisan baking across the whole of Ireland. You know, every cor every corner seems to have like a really uh, incredible bakery with talented bakers. Yeah. So, yeah and you cool. also have to go with that now, again, which for a century was in decline, is the production of spirits. Uh, we now have, for example, in 2023, 
there will be the first whiskey in Ireland made on an island from Ackle Island, Irish-American whiskey. Uh, we have gins to beat the band. You don't need a PhD in order to order a gin and tonic in a bar uh, because it's multiple choice. And people have realized that they can make a living. They don't get rich, but they they have that lovely lifestyle, which was actually the originator of uh, farmhouse cheeses in Ireland was Veronica Steele and her husband, Norman. And once memorably, uh, he said to us, he said, well, what we've been doing is we've been making a living, making something that matters. And we went like, whoa, that's it. That's the life well lived. And we've been trying to do that. I don't think we've succeeded, but we'll get there. <laughs> Yeah, I think there we. It was interesting. I was talking to Jaina Ferguson. I'm sure. I think you've met from Gabine, and she was saying that the first time you know she was making the cheese, which she, she made without any business plan or anything, she made it for the family, and she took a bit down to the local shop um, in Skull O'Keefe's. and O'Keefe's. Yes, and. 15 minutes later, she, she hadn't even almost got home. The phone rang and they said, it's sold. Can we have some more? So, And she said the penny dropped. And she said, you know, I didn't think Irish people would really want local cheese. They'd be just looking for French cheese. And, and she said, no, they really wanted it. And we were in a position to give it to them. Um, so I think that's, I mean, I think people... They 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 learn the sourdough themselves, and then they want to buy it, the only sourdough. And um, so you know, it, it, we're all learning. We're all in a learning process together, and it's very exciting. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for ten years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in two thousand and eight, and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones. And I'm your co-host, Dara Bresnitz. Part of why we started the show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun. Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium. It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders 
to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry. With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape. We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show. Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29. We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world. So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram. I think you've already touched on a little bit of this in your previous answers, but I know you you mentioned that producers being really key and then cheese specifically when you first started out. But the Irish food scene has really come a long way since then. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about some of the things that you think are most exciting that are happening right now in Irish food, both geographically in terms of region in Ireland and also in terms of restaurants and producers. Yes, good question. Um, I I think, I mean, one thing I I just, I, I did just advert to there is um, Irish distilling for a century was in in retreat. Um, if you go back more than 100 years ago, Ar- uh, Irish whiskey was the dominant spirit in the world. Uh, we lost that market to the Scottish, uh, who, who make wonderful whiskies, but that was really kind of our market and we blew it. We lost it. Uh, Ar- the story of Irish distilling in the 20th century was one of one distillery after another Closing, 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 closing. It's one of the saddest stories ever told is the 20th century history of Irish distilling. The 21st century has seen that turned on its head. New distilleries everywhere, new drinks, new whiskies. We even have cocktails in Ireland now. You know, back in the day, we had Guinness, uh, Paddy Whiskey, and um, I was brought up in Belfast and the women up there used to drink Carlsberg Special, which is like one of those beers that drives you crazy after three sips. And um, and, and I drove them all crazy after three sips. And I was brought up in a pub and I had that. Well, anyway, that was my interesting life. So that um, that growth in um, artisan spirits and then the pro- provocation for people to say, well, hang on a minute, I can mix a much more, you know, this is a nice drink, but if I mix it with this and this and this and this, with Irish bitters, for example, we never had Irish bitters. Now we have people making Irish bitters. We have Irish vermouth. Um, so you can practically make an Irish Negroni with Irish gin and Irish vermouth. We we we, we don't have the, uh, what's the other thing you need for a Negroni? The third one, the red the, one. Uh, Campari. We don't have Camparis yet. Uh, but we will. Somebody will soon do that. And you will be able to actually make an Irish Negroni um, and put it up on YouTube and get really, really famous, you know. So that ability to learn from overseas and then say, you know, we can do that. Not only can we do it, maybe we can do it a bit better. 
And for me, that's the really, the levels of confidence in Irish food are really sky high right now. And compared to 35 years ago when it was it was subterranean. Really. Yeah, I would say, you know, we started off by saying about when we first started, right, there were very few good restaurants outside of Dublin. And no, and even in Dublin, it was only the, there were only really, really expensive restaurants. And then we started to see middle range places coming in Dublin. And then, but I think now the explosion has actually been restaurants in the whole country of Ireland, um, which is to do with chefs going back to where they came from. And the idea of, of restaurants, people want to go to restaurants, people love restaurants. And there's sort of been an explosion of really good small places, which be places that will use the ingredients like seaweed that understand about foraging, that bake their own sourdough. You know, all these sort of tropes are coming together in restaurants in the Irish countryside. And it's it's brilliant. So you all have been at this for a little while now and have seen some some booms and busts throughout Ireland uh, in terms of the economy. And right now, like, as you said, there's, there are many, many wonderful restaurants that have opened up, but there's also a lot of particular challenges of the time. I'm thinking of the energy crisis right now and other things coming out of the pandemic. What do you see as the next sort of short-term chapter for Irish food and restaurants? How serious do you think that the energy crisis is going into this winter? And what do you if you have any sort of insight on that, what do you see happening next there? Well, just, just to talk about the pandemic, first of all, the pandemic changed a lot. I mean, I think people, uh, the whole vista of Irish eating now has changed. Everybody eats outside now. There was a lot of money given to restaurants to actually develop terraces and outdoor eating. And, you know, we're a country that rains quite a lot <laughs> and we, we never really thought we could do this. But actually, when you get down to it, there's many days when it doesn't rain and there's also shelter that you could do. So we've seen the landscape of Irish dining change in the last few, few couple of years during the pandemic. Takeaways, you know, people cooking things online, on Insta, you know, or whatever, sharing information in different ways. The pandemic did have a very, in lots of ways, a very good effect um, in, in Ireland. I mean, the energy crisis is very scary it depends on how much support there is from the government. But mm. at the moment, it looks like there will be support. But I mean, people are just getting bills in the thousands. And there are people who are saying, unless I get support, I can't survive. So it's really all down to the government. Mm. And they did. the government supported the food industry during the pandemic. And I just hope that they there is enough left in the pot to uh, to support them, because that's the only thing that we'll, otherwise we'll see a lot of closures, I think. Yeah. It is having a bad impact, you know. The the biggest challenge, though, <clears throat> aside from rising costs for restaurants, is actually the difficulty in getting staff. Um, whether it's the great retirement, or nobody is able, <clears throat> excuse me, nobody is quite able to put their finger on why in so many industries, not just hospitality, but uh, there, it is very difficult to get the staff you want and very difficult sometimes to keep them. Nobody's really quite sure why. Everybody, everybody, and I mean everybody in the hospitality industry in Ireland, is under pressure in terms of their staffing. Almost nobody has their ideal crew, their ideal complement. Uh, and yet we can't quite figure out exactly why or how this has happened. 
because our population is growing slowly but growing. So so that actually, in terms of restaurants, is is a challenge. It's also in some ways something that could have a good effect because if sometimes people in restaurants get too ambitious and they start to see, you know, we could have 100 seats when really actually what you're very good at doing is running something with 40 seats. Uh, but they say, no, 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 let's give let's get 60 more seats and so on. And it doesn't really work. There's too much pressure. It's beyond their level of competence. Whereas for me, a really successful uh, restaurant culture, the best example of this has been Galway over the last decade. Galway has become a wonderful, wonderful city to eat. We remember when it was a terrible city for food, really terrible. You tell people that and they, they don't believe you, but it was terrible. But Galway's success was actually built on a series of small rooms. Some of them had Michelin stars. Some of them were, you know, you couldn't get a seat for love nor money. But they were all, they had a, the right size for the city. Galway's a small city, 60,000 people. Um, and so the restaurants had the right kind of vibe and feel. And I kind of worry when people have these mega projects and they're going to do this and they're going to roll this out. That's not really, I think, the way a successful restaurant culture works. A restaurant culture, you know, the Italians know this better than anybody else. The local place where they know your name and you go back to 26 times a year, 40 times a year, 100 times a year, um, you're not going to eat three-star food more than once a year, twice a year. Uh, just having big, top-end, expensive restaurants is not a restaurant culture. That's just snobbery. That's just for people with money and no taste to show off their money. And I don't want to sit beside those people and I don't eat that kind of food. Shifting back just for a moment to, to the process of creating your guides. Um, we were talking to Sally Barnes about you a few years back. And apart from just singing your praises in general, she mentioned to us that one of the things that you do in your guides is, or one of the things you don't do is negative reviews. So for example, if you go to a place, whether it's a restaurant or a hotel, and you have a less than stellar experience that rather than writing about how someone isn't up to snuff, you just don't write about them at all. And I know that that is something that not all food writers and journalists and people like that ascribe to. So I'm wondering if, if you would say that this is accurate and what is your the thinking behind that? Yeah, it it is accurate and it's very simple to explain. Um, many years ago, Ken Hom, wonderful chef, wrote a book about uh, Hong Kong food and featured, you know, ideas and uh, concepts from many restaurants in Hong Kong. And one of the things he mentioned just as a sideline, was the fact that Hong Kong food reviewers never dissed anywhere. They didn't do it. It was considered bad form. It was considered bad manners. What they didn't do, you know, because they didn't dish you, they didn't say anything. And so you as a restaurateur, what you had to do in the phrase was you had to listen to the silence, listen for the silence. So if you were hearing silence, if you knew the, the, the reviewer had been in your place and there was no review or there was no accolade, well, then that's the criticism. It didn't have to be put in print. Um, I know some restaurant critics in particular love to swing the axe. Um, I think they're generally men with a very low self-esteem and uh, who like to feel important. Uh that's their problem. I don't want to read that sort of stuff. So our own 
Um, sometimes it's painful. You can get a big bill. You know, you go out for dinner, the two of us, it's expensive enough. And you say, Do you know what? It just doesn't. No, it's no good. It's not, not there. You still got to pay the bill. You still have to pay the bill. And we've been paying that bill for 35 years. Um, so it doesn't always seem like a good choice. And yet it's kind of kept us out of trouble. Um, and we're still here. So, so there's so many good things. To write so many good us. things. Right about the good stuff. And, and I mean, we've been lucky that we've gone hand in hand with, with so many people over the, you know, we were there at the beginning and we've hope we've supported people as much as we can and enjoyed it. And to me, that's that's what we've wanted to do is just to support people, not to not to bring them down. If they're not doing it right, we have no interest. Yeah, and I think probably the worst side of articles like that that are turn out to be takedowns is that there are inevitably people that get sacrificed as a result, or people will lose their jobs at mm-hmm. various levels in the restaurant, whether it was their fault or not. So that's something that always made me feel really uncomfortable about about negative yeah. reviews. So it is really, it's great to hear. I, I, I actually think um, giving somebody license to trash places in a magazine or a newspaper, <clears throat> that's actually a sign of a very immature restaurant culture. So it is because there are plenty of good places, but you've got to look for the good places. You've got to find them and get there and then be able to describe what they're trying to achieve. But there are plenty of people who write about food who say, well, I like this, but I don't like that. Who cares what you like? Why should anybody care what you like? You know, if you don't like awful, why are you writing, you know, uh, about, oh, you know, I, I had this dish and I didn't like it. Um, to me, critics have to stand back and be be invisible and say, what is the person trying to achieve and are they achieving it? It's not whether I like it, you know. If I like it, that's great. It's a bonus. Fantastic. But I, I think it's actually a sign of immaturity in a restaurant culture. It's very popular in the UK. You know, they love this. Somebody comes out on a Saturday morning, a Sunday morning in the weekend papers, in the magazines, and this is this place and this is this place. Some people became very, very famous doing it, you know. And I just thought, as I say, that they were immature people writing very immature articles. The articles were always overwritten too, you know. They were always straining for effect. Um, and, I mean, you know, if the article was like a meal – it was essentially inedible. I just think that's so puerile. And I say, it's so male. You know, women really... There was one exception. There's a few women. Generally, there are. There are. In Ireland It's not a gender thing. But I I, I regard it as as a sign of kind of immaturity that you, you know, when there is creativity in a a culture, your job is to find it. You know, you're... um, What's that term they use? uh, You're a cool hunter. We're the cool people. My job is to find them. You know, if they're doing the weird shit, that's what I want. And it's my job to get in the car and go and find what they're doing and write about it. Rather than saying, I didn't like this. Who cares? You didn't like it. You poor thing. You know, I'm very sorry for you. Go and lie down. (laughs) It seems like there's a parallel there with like um, people that write in that style and also with like, say, chefs in restaurants that yell and scream and throw fit you know throw throw fits uh in order to achieve what they want and it seems like they're both sort of that's really more just about them than about actually creating something that is uh, something that other people are going to like or that's useful yeah do you, do you, there was a the, <clears throat> the wonderful andy barovitz in the new york and uh, the new yorker had a little story this week about boris johnson 
uh, and just saying that, you know, people in America were really disappointed that your malignant narcissists haven't gone away, whereas in the UK, their malignant narcissist has gone away. Yeah, it's it's a form of look at me, malignant narcissism. You can take it all the way to the top of Twitter and there's malignant narcissism in the White House, in number 10 Downing Street and in a lot of kitchens where people scream and shout. Um, I'm a fan of attachment theory myself. I don't think anybody ever picked those children up when they were babies. <laughs> well, now knowing the uh, the sort of um, listen to the silence meaning of what the of what that means, I wonder if that. It, it, it stings even harder than getting a bad review, maybe, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it seems like some people aren't, you know, they don't stop talking long enough to listen to the silence. And I think that might be one of the problems. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, some people cook in order to get attention and some people cook because they'd like to feed you. And we like the places where they, they like to feed you, where they like to do something nice for you and creatively and something that expresses where they are, who they are, where they are, what they're doing. Uh, the per- well, you know, we call it the four P's, the person, the place, the product, and the passion. And that's what we're looking for. And if you can put that on a plate for me, I'm, we're the happiest guys on the planet. That's the fifth P, planet. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, need that one. Without, the other, without that one, the other ones don't count for much, right? <laughs> well, one of the last things we wanted to ask you about is how, um, and again, you've been representing or in a position to represent Irish food internationally for some time. And while we think that the perception of Irish food internationally has been changing, we're wondering what your thoughts on that topic are. How are people outside of Ireland seeing Ireland as a food country now, and how has that changed over the last 30 years? I I would say a lot of it is down to our own self-confidence. I think there was a time we had our book translated into French and we had a launch in Paris and we brought over three wonderful chefs and we invited all the French food writers to come and taste the food. And they were honestly, they were so rude. <laughs> they wouldn't, they just said, why are you giving us this? Why don't, what's wrong with bacon and cabbage? You know, <laughs> so, um, and <clears throat> our own people um, were saying, Oh God, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing this. We, we're not up to this. Um, but I think as our as our confidence has grown and as um, things like Food on the Edge have brought amazing, um, amazing chefs have come to Ireland. I think we've we've been more confident in showing them the real island because we, we just know what we do well. And they come over and they say, wow, you know, this is this is amazing. And I, I think as a result, the standing of Ireland has has is now very, very high and people recognize they recognize that it's a, it's a natural um cultural part of uh, you know it's it's part of who we are and our ingredients are, are great and there's so much to irish food and i do think the more we have confidence in it the more people appreciate it i i think we're we're really part of um something that really happened 25 25 to 30 years ago when um as the famous article in the New York Times had it, the Zeitgeist moved across the Pyrenees, out of Paris and France and into Ferran Adria's Spain. It's since moved on to Scandinavia, in particular to Denmark. I remember when, um, I remember once interviewing René Redzepe and he would talk about how as a child they would eat pre-cooked Eastern European vegetables. All they had was bacon, which they sold to England. Uh, they, had, they, they had no food culture. 
rather like us, really, except we had very good ingredients, but they didn't even have good ingredients. So we're part of that um, global movement, which has seen the the old hegemonies crumble. France, who goes to France to eat any longer? I mean, that used to be, you know, it was an annual thing for Jack Nicholson to go and do all the three-star restaurants in the greater Paris region. Um, nobody does that anymore. Whereas the real serious food explorers, you know, you're going to Peru, you're going to Brazil, you're going to Sydney, you're going to um, Asia, you're going to Copenhagen, hopefully you're going to Galway. Um, you know, we have been part of that thing. In, in a curious way, it can be very fortunate to have a tabula rasa, to have a blank slate, because then you can make your culture what you want to make it. The French are very high bound by tradition, particularly their culinary traditions. They're right to respect it. But if it if it only begets a mindset that says my way or the highway, then you can't move on. The Italians similarly have, have an issue with this. I remember years ago, after judging in Vinitaly being brought to swanky places in Italy, and the food was absolutely diabolical. It was unbelievably bad. And after about three days, we were all saying, can we please just go to a little osteria? You know, don't take us to some two-star place where they don't know what they're doing. So the sometimes the history can be a dead weight. And I think, you, you know, when you see the dynamism in the countries that have been exploded onto the global firmament over the last 15 years, it's people like ourselves or Denmark who really had very little. But we've been able to write the manifesto. We've been able to write not the rule book because the rule book isn't there. The rule is what you want it to be. And I, I think we're, we're quite fortunate in that. It's rather like if you were a cheesemaker in Italy or France, you make cheese in the style you're told. You make Parmesan, you make Pecorino, you make, you, you, you make a Tom. The cheesemakers we know in Ireland, they just made it up. They made it up. You know, they might have tried French cheeses or Spanish cheeses or Italian cheeses, but they kind of said, well, do you know what? This, you know, my, my climate suits this type of cheese. And so they literally made it up from nothing. An extraordinary achievement for anybody in any field. You know, it's a bit like writing a, a, a symphony without ever hearing a symphony being played. But that is what they did. And that's what the restaurants are doing, which is quite yeah, quite a, significant. A story um, the Sheridans tell about cashel blue cheese, which is they they introduce the cashel blue cheese in the in the in slow food in Bra, and the shopkeepers go, "Oh, this is fantastic! Can I have can I have cashel blue from fifteen different producers, please?" <laughs> and you say. Um, no, that it's not like Hamburg. There's only one producer of Cashel Blue in one farm. Uh, in one farm, and the lady who invented it, you know. So it's just you. It's as you say, we re rewriting the rules. Yeah, I love that. I can't think of a better place to end this conversation on the, on that note, right? Yeah, although I feel like we could keep talking for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been great. You, great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.